I invite you to remain standing as you're able for the reading of the gospel. It comes from Mark, second chapter, verses 23 through the third chapter, the sixth verse. Jesus went through the wheat fields on the Sabbath. As the disciples made their way, they were picking the heads of wheat. The Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they breaking the Sabbath law? He said to them, haven't you ever read what David did when he was in need? when he and those with him were hungry. During the time when Abathar was high priest, David went into God's house and ate the bread of the presence which only the priests were allowed to eat. He also gave bread to those who were with him. Then he said the Sabbath was created for humans. Humans weren't created for the Sabbath. This is why the human one is Lord even over the Sabbath. Jesus then returned to the synagogue A man with a withered hand was there, wanting to bring charges against Jesus. They were watching Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. He said to the man with the withered hand, Stand up where people can see you. Then he said to them, Is it legal on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they said nothing. Looking around at them with anger, deeply grieved at their unyielding hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he did, and his hand was made healthy. At that, the Pharisees got together with the supporters of Herod to plan how to destroy Jesus. This is the word of God for all of us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Eternal and everlasting God, I pray that you pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Gathered here for worship that we might know that it is your love working for good in the world. pray that you pour out your Spirit on this meditation that it might be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus has been in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. He's begun to teach a bit. And just before this episode, he has uh, offered up a parable about wineskins, that old wineskins can't hold new wine because they'll burst. And here we find this, this story about Jesus traveling on the road with his disciples. And it is indeed the Sabbath, and they are walking through, walking down the road, likely hungry, and so they stop to pluck the heads off of wheat need something to eat. And the Pharisees, it's kind of a curious thing that they are standing within, uh, well, they're standing close enough that they can see what's going on. So I imagine that Jesus and the disciples are on the road and maybe the Pharisees are standing uh, 20, 30 yards away trying to keep an eye on Jesus to see who it is that is beginning to teach with authority to heal, to see the one that the crowds are going out of the villages to see on the roadside. They want to know if he's trouble at all. And so they see this, what is a really a benign act, plucking wheat grain so that they might have food on the Sabbath, rather than going to have someone else cook for them, which would be a Sabbath law transgression, they pop the heads of wheat. And the Pharisees say, oh, no. This man has broken the Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments. He has not remembered the Sabbath nor kept it 
holy. Shame on him. And so once this charge has been brought, that they have presented it, Jesus responds to them by telling what I would think is a well-known story. To first century Jews, they would probably have remembered that there was a time when Saul was king. And for your edification, it's 1 Samuel 21. You can read this, this episode. Saul is not happy with David, and so David and a band of his men are on the run. And they, David tells them to wait at an undisclosed location for a while. David's going to go and procure food. And so he goes to the, the tabernacle and he speaks to the priest there, asking for something to eat. He demands that he be given five loaves of bread, and the priest says, I don't have five loaves to give you. The only bread is the bread of presence, showbread, shoebread, depending on the, the translation. You may know about some of that. So there's this holy, precious bread that... I mean, it would be like one of you coming in saying, man, I haven't eaten breakfast, walking up to this communion table and breaking the bread before the great Thanksgiving and eating. Just think of that kind of, that, that taboo thing that you're not going to do and just amplify it as if the very presence of God is right there sitting on the table, untouchable bread, and David says, I'm hungry, and my men are hungry. And the priest says, well, this is all I've got. And he gives it to David. This is the story that, that Jesus is referencing to say, well, David did it. Maybe, and this is before David's even king. Maybe it's David's authority that Jesus is placing him in the same vein. David goes to the tabernacle to get bread. At least I can pluck grains of wheat. Maybe it's not as big a transgression as it was made out to be. That's the frame there. The Pharisees are most concerned that one of the Ten Commandments, the one that is written about more in their life together than any other commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. All sorts of provisions in the Torah have been given on how to protect the Sabbath, what can be done and what can't be done on the Sabbath. Don't work. Don't travel outside of your village, so don't go from Kingston Springs to Nashville. You've got to stay within the town limits. Make sure that any meals that are going to be shared among family and friends, make sure the prep work was done beforehand. You can't be out running, getting groceries. You can't be working. There was a conversation in Sunday school about can you tend to farm animals on the Sabbath. Soccer practice and travel softball would probably have been on the don't do it list. Some of you, I would imagine, can remember a time when blue laws were in place. All sorts of things that you don't do on Sunday. In most places, though I'm sure not all, those are, um, they have been relegated to the history books can do just about anything on Sunday these days. So, we have a tradition, the Pharisees have one, Jesus has one, that what he is doing, plucking wheat, may be considered work. And the Pharisees want to protect it seemingly at all costs. 
the Sabbath, to maintain the letter of the Torah law. There's also a provision that would have given a traveler the opportunity to glean, to glean the edge of the field or the orchard or the vineyard. The Society of St. Andrew, I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar with that ministry, they glean apple orchards and sweet potato fields. And sometimes if they're ugly green beans that can't be harvested, I mean, pickup trucks full of green beans, you can go out to East Tennessee and get them, and churches can package them up to take them to local food banks because there is, there are, there is food still left in the field. And they're gleaning ministries. If it's not going to commercial output, maybe they can go to local food banks. We can read in the Torah the opportunity for strangers, immigrants, travelers, sojourners to walk through the field and to reach and have food. It would be unthinkable to say that all that is within my farmland that I tend is for me. Because what that does, it is not a recognition of the gift of the land that God has given to people. That blessing and tending of creation that was first given in Genesis. We are stewards. We might have dominion over creation, and we've misused that at times. But all of creation has been entrusted to our care, and we're able to be generous with it. That is written in Torah law as well. So, I mean, it's a technicality. Was Jesus doing work on the Sabbath? Maybe. Trustee, or, <laughs> trustees. <laughs> oh, Lord have mercy. We work sometimes. That's right. Sometimes on Sundays, mostly on Tuesday nights. That the Pharisees. That's a Freudian slip if ever there was one. Y'all get it. The Pharisees think that Jesus is working on the Sabbath and they're not having it. So then Jesus goes back to the synagogue in Capernaum. And we see this for a second time. They want to bring charges. This is, uh, they're trying to catch him doing something he's not supposed to be doing so that uh, maybe he can be punished for it. And so they present this opportunity for healing. Let's see if his compassion ministry will outrank his obedience to the law, which set of values will he uphold? Here's a man with a withered hand. So Jesus asked them, is it legal on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to kill or to save a life? If we were reading this in Matthew's version of it, he has a little bit more commentary. He said, wouldn't a man who has an oxen or a donkey that's fallen into the ditch or fallen into a hole, perhaps injured itself, wouldn't a neighbor come alongside and help to retrieve the animal from harm? Surely you're not going to leave livestock in a position of harm in the ditch until sun up on the next day just because it's the Sabbath. Surely a human life that needs healing is more valuable than the donkey that's in the ditch. Is his reasoning. That's what he's asking slightly differently here. He asks this question and no one dares utter a response. He's angry at their unyielding hearts. No one wants to offer up even an inch 
to say, well, of course it's right to heal and do good on the Sabbath. They're afraid that if they maybe give an inch that Jesus will take a mile to say that maybe the Torah law and the way that they are using it is constricting. That it's choking the life out of community and their obedience to it is blinding to the man in the synagogue who needs healing. And I think as a prophetic act, he says, let me see your hand, stretch it out and be healed as a way to answer the question he posed to the Pharisees. Well, that's the second charge that he has done work, prohibited work on the Sabbath. The Pharisees aren't having it. And so even at the I mean, we're only in the second chapter of Mark, and there's already a plan to destroy Jesus, to have him killed, because powers that be can't have a healer and a teacher and a rabbi and the Messiah on the move, unraveling their understanding of the law and their imposition of it in the community. Notice that the man with the withered hand doesn't have a name, doesn't even say anything. I don't think, he doesn't seem to be the primary actor here. I think his healing might be a a bit secondary. Really what we have is a question of authority. That's the driving moment is you've got Jesus' authority as a healer and a teacher and a rabbi. Who is a child and heir of Torah law, first century Judaism, and he's reshaping it. Or at least he's calling into question the way that it has been used and taught for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I've said it before in different times, offering a little bit of compassion for the Pharisees. Why they're so... Hmm. so firm that this is the way that it has to be that their obedience to the letter of the law is such that maybe they're unwilling to yield a little bit to say maybe in this situation the holy thing to do the thing to reflect the love of God in the world the reign of God in the world would be to heal this man's hand not to get caught up on whether it's prohibited or not. It's a question of ethics. It's a question of values. We see this all the time. Whether we frame it this way or not, we have questions of authority at play. The way that we handle our sacred scriptures the way that the scriptures point us to our understanding of God. And I do believe that sometimes the most fiery language and preaching and teaching that we get is people who, they're unyielding, but they're unyielding for a reason because if they give a bit, what else will they lose? I think there's a grief there. The Pharisees say, yes, we'll heal this man. Of course he deserves it. It calls into question the whole tradition, all of it. Is it true anymore? Are we still 
the children of God that have been called and set apart. This is why the Sabbath is given so much time in the Exodus story and in creation. Because it's a sign that we are children of God. We're set apart. We have to rest. We know who we are as creatures and we know who God is. If we start giving just a little bit, what else will we lose? I think that's sometime while we dig in so deep. Something I watched transpire this week. And I do, I think I understand from the pew. I always lift up what's going on in our church together. But I think it, it hits where the, the gospel and the lectionary find us this day as a question of authority. It's annual conference season. Just about a week and a half, two weeks away. And in the Baltimore-Washington conference, think Northern Virginia and, and Maryland, there was a candidate for ministry, two candidates for ministry, who had been recommended by their staff parish many years ago to that they had the gifts and the graces, the same way that my home church in Richmond did this, the same way that Kelly's Nazarene Church, and since then, Belmede has said, you have the gifts and graces and leadership for ministry. And it's confirmed at the local church level. And the District Committee on Ordained Ministry said, indeed, you do have the gifts, and you're fruitful. And the Board of Ordained Ministry recommended these two individuals for licensing, or for commissioning, to start the three or four or five year ordination process. These two individuals came up before the Board of Ordained Ministry, just as I did last March. And they were recommended for ordination. What a gift from the church. And so there's one other thing that has to happen at annual conference. Anybody who has been recommended by the Board of Ordained Ministry goes before all of the other pastors in the annual conference. It's called the executive session. And there, all the clergy in the conference have to vote to bring someone into full membership. And because that these two individuals in the gay and lesbian community, Bishop Latrell Easterling, said that it was out of order to vote and approve these two candidates for ministry for ordination. Even though they had been recommended by the Board of Ordained Ministry, they had been tested, they had been examined, the psychological reports, the credit checks, and everything else that come, comes with the territory. Someone asked Bishop Easterling for a ruling on whether these two candidates were properly presented to the annual conference or to the executive session. Normally, the bishop has 30 days to make a ruling on when there's a, a ruling is requested. Bishop Easterling didn't have 30 days. Bishop Easterling had uh, a matter of hours to make a ruling here. And this is what was shared to the church afterwards. I pray that in 2019 we move away from the restrictive language in our book of discipline and allow all to really find a full and complete home within the United Methodist Church. The matter that was causing us not to be able to move forward was this concern that the Board of Ordained Ministry hadn't done a full inquiry. Typically, I have 30 days to rule. I can't wait 30 days tonight. 
I will not upend the process to, to impose what I believe to be right and just. Therefore, in good conscience and against what I believe to be an error in our book of discipline, I will not violate its current law. I reserve the right to reach a different conclusion if circumstances change in the future. To watch this happen, to watch the conversation and the fire and the fury unfold, I can't help but think how appropriate it is that this is our lectionary reading this morning. A question of ethics, a question of authority. Surely, General Conference will meet in nine months or so, and we'll see where our church goes from here. But the language in Bishop Easterling's note to the church did her no favors whatsoever, because it is reminiscent of Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail to eight moderate white clergy persons. It was a gradualism that said, not here, not right now. Don't come to our city to agitate. Give us time to do this on our own terms. What if Jesus had said to the man with the withered hand, hold on, it's the Sabbath. I'll come back tomorrow. Let me heal your hand tomorrow. What cause of concern is it to you? It's only a day. It's not so much the healing, it's the authority at question here. Bishop Easterling says, confesses. He says, I believe that the right thing to do is to ordain these two individuals. But I'm bound by the book of discipline as a matter of authority and leadership in the church. I'm not going to do what I believe to be right and just. I'm not Bishop Easterling. Thanks be to God for that. But to make that confession is a spiritual sickness in our church. There's no question. Y'all know that I think that we should ordain gay and lesbian individuals, that they're just as good pastors as any of us. But to say that this is our rule book and we have to follow it to the letter is choking the life out of our church. That's what I want you to see and to consider. That the, in the spirit, in the season of Pentecost, the spirit of God is going to move to bring life to new people to communities, to do redemptive, restorative work. And this is the reality that happens above your head just a few layers up. I don't know what's going to happen in February and March of 2019. But when I see things like this, in the grand scheme, about every 500 years, something happens to the Christian tradition. The Holy Roman Empire falls in 500 or so. In 1,000, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox churches split the Great Schism. 1,500 is the Reformation. 2,000, we're, we're a couple years overdue. Christendom is out. It's in the waste bin of history. Christian nations, not so much anymore. The tides are turning in the church. I would love for there to be a united Methodist Church in 2019. But to watch the letter of the law choke out 
fruitful, gifted ministers and churches and attempts for people to go and serve in new places with new people, with kids and grandkids who've given up on churches. We've got to stop stifling that work. In my mind, if something is that prohibitive and we're not getting the results that we're after, something has to change. If it all comes rattling undone, maybe we will be better ministers and disciples for it. To say we're looking for a fresh word and a fresh way forward. Maybe. But that's law and gospel, as I see it this past week. I want you to keep an eye on where the conflicts that you see, where's the authority? Because I think that's really the question. And when we start giving a little bit, what else is on the table? It might help us understand and see our neighbors a bit better. That they're really doing grief work. That maybe what they've known to be true isn't quite true in the same way. That's a hard thing to take. Always look for the ways that the Spirit of God is calling us into new ways of being, into new ways of ministry with our neighbors. And there you will sense, in the most palpable way, the reign of God breaking into our midst, out on the edges somewhere. Bless you this day and forevermore in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.